Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello! And welcome to this week's Reasons to be Cheerful. Now, as we mentioned last week, this is one of our Cheerful Book Club episodes. Ed isn't here, but please don't reach for the delete episode button just yet. This is a really good conversation. Our guest is Nicola Rollock, who is a professor of race and social policy at King's College London. And she has a fantastic new book out. It's called The Racial Code, Tales of Resistance and Survival. Ed will be back next week. I'm sure that he'll have plenty to say about the new Prime Minister and how the UK is approaching COP27. That's if he can fit it in between telling us about his latest open water swimming escapades. And do share your thoughts on this episode, as well as ideas for subjects you'd like to hear us talk about in the future, and your entry for our cheerful theme tune contest. The email address is reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com, or you can email us through the website cheerfulpodcast.com. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Nicola Rollock, hello. Hello. Thanks for coming. The book is fantastic. It's called The Racial Code, Tales of Resistance and Survival. And having read up on you, much of your work has been in academia. When I'm reading this book, I I can tell you want to reach beyond that world. Yes. Talk to me a little bit about that, who you were writing for, why you decided to write the book. Well, so this is a book about everyday racism. It's nonfiction, but I make use of, which is what you're alluding to, fiction. I make use of stories and storytelling in order to drive home the point. So what I've done is I've gone back. I've been an academic for a little while now. Do I have to say years? Kind of 25 years. (laughs) (laughs) And what I've done is I've gone back through government reports, through statistical evidence, through academic evidence as well. And I've mixed all of that together and pulled out some key themes and I've crafted stories around those themes. So for example, I'm really interested in the way that race and social class work alongside each other. And so for that, rather than telling you about the data and the statistics, what I start with is a story that's set in a private members club. And so we've got a middle-class, mixed-race man who's got all the accoutrements of middle-classness and he still experiences racism, this more subtle form of racism. And then I also include end notes so that the reader can refer back to the evidence, back to the research reports, should they wish. And the reason that I decided on this particular approach is, one, this is a really complex and quite controversial subject area, the matter of race and racism. And then connected to that as a black female scholar specialising in racial justice, it felt a little bit contrary to write a piece of research. I mean, I've done it and I do it, otherwise I wouldn't have reached where I am academically. But I felt that 
actually to write something like this would reach a broader audience. I could speak to both the academic audience and a broader audience. You ask me who this is for, mm. and I would say that very traditional author thing of it's for everyone, darling. <laughs> <laughs> but what I mean by that is I think what white readers may take from it is an improved understanding of those more subtle forms of racism. I think we have now where most people understand what explicit forms or overt forms, and we perhaps saw that around the murder of George Floyd in 2020. But what this book is doing is going behind that. So if we were to continue thinking about George Floyd and Derek Chauvin, the white police officer who put his knee on the neck of George Floyd, what we might surmise is that there were behaviours and assumptions that before that moment that showed that Chauvin had particular views around black people. And so that's what this book is focused on. Those more subtle, everyday forms of racism, including racial microaggression. So I think for white people, it will give them that insight. But I think it also shows how quite strategic black people are when it comes to managing these subtle forms of racism. We exist in a political dynamic at the moment where even to say that you experience racism is somehow to sign up to being feckless, lacking in ambition, to, to describe oneself immediately as being a victim. And I really want to move away from that. I think that's profoundly problematic and divisive. And I want us to move away from that and have a more mature conversation about race. And in order to do that, we have to understand the ways in which racism manifests and also how people work in really clever, quite strategic ways to overcome it. And I think for black people reading this book, people of colour reading this book, I'm hoping it will offer a source of affirmation. Someone tweeted the other day and said, oh, my goodness, I feel seen. This is a black woman. I feel seen. And that's what the book is supposed to do. Is it that the, the conversations that are not had in books, they're not had in the media? Is, is that what that response is about? Absolutely. I mean, we, we live in a society, and this is the point, we live in a society that is shaped by class. Yeah. We live in a society that is shaped by patriarchy. We also live in a society that is shaped by ableism, by particular norms, and also one that is shaped by whiteness, dare I say it. So what this book is about is saying, yes, I do see you. And these conversations, so you could, you could look at the stories as conversations in some ways, are ones that I have, that black people have. We have all the time with each other. And what I've sought to do in the book is bring together our experiences and map it, tie it in really closely with the data, the statistical evidence. Because I think only looking at the statistical evidence in isolation doesn't give you an insight into the nuances, into the struggles, into, and I'll use the word again, the strategizing that black people are making use of in order to survive. What they're actually saying is, I just went through this situation. Am I going mad? Was that about my skin colour? And we don't necessarily, I say we, because I'm part of this as a black woman, come to the conclusion that it was about racism first, because it's not comfortable to think that you're being judged or treated differently because of the colour of your skin. So you're looking for what might be a palatable or rational explanation to why you were spoken down to or why your achievements weren't acknowledged. But if you look at that and time and time again and there's no other explanation and you put that against the data which shows their few 
black people at senior levels, it's difficult not to come to the conclusion that race is a factor. What do you think it is about institutions that when data clearly shows something that there's racial aspects or patterns within organisations. Talk to me about the disconnect between that data and then the denial that seems to happen. Why do you think that is? Is it that nobody wants to think that they're the bad guy? There's so many ways to come in by way of response to that question. I think that there is a subscription, if you will, to being well-meaning. So I've been in so many situations where I've heard white people say, we recognise the data is problematic, but I'm committed to change. And, you know, they would describe themselves as well-meaning around the subject area. So let's play with that a minute. If we have so much well-meaning and so much good intention and those things led to change, why have we not seen change? Let me put that another way. If change around racial justice were wholly and solely dependent on well-meaning and good intentions, then surely we would see change. So that then must lead us to ask a different set of questions, which is, well, clearly well-meaning isn't sufficient. So what's going on? So I would say there's a stuckedness, if I can make up a word. word. (laughs) But... I would also say something else that's slightly more problematic that's going on. This is where we get dark in the podcast. (laughs) I think we're in a really strange position. So, for example, let's take me as in our hypothetical example. I'm a black woman. I'm an academic, a professor. I decide I want to do a project around improving outcomes for black students at universities. I'm making this up. I write my proposal. I get some of my peers to look through the proposal. So this peers who've got expertise in subject area. I then submit that proposal to a funding body. Does the funding body have the detailed expertise of my subject area in order to be able to identify what I'm trying to do? Let's say that I get funding, but more often than not, we know that black scholars don't get funding. Right. But let's say that I'm funded. And then I write journal articles. Where do I submit my articles to? Who makes the decision about whether or not the arguments in my article are coherent and meaningful? My overarching point is, if I have ideas about how to advance racial justice, that's great. It's my specialism. I'm a black woman. I know lots of people in this field. But I'm not the one who makes the final call when it comes to funding. I'm not the one who makes the final call when it comes to policies. I am not the one, or people like me, aren't the ones who make the final call when it comes to what's taught in schools. And so I think this is where the issue is, to kind of take it full circle. Mm. The issue is who makes the decision about which initiatives, which programmes, which funding, which arguments are advanced, whether it's in media whether it's in policing, whether it's in the wider arena of politics, who determines the debate when it comes to racial justice? Who determines what's going to get funded? It's not me. Yeah. And you write in the book, and I thought I'm paraphrasing, but it was about kind of white people having final say on what's racist Mm. or not. I just think there's something really perverse. And and so this is not to centre on me. I'm just using me as a hypothetical. But there's something really perverse about the idea that 
I've got what might be seen by some as a radical, but certainly a different idea when it comes to taking forward some work in this subject. But I usually will have to go to someone who's white to get approval for it, to get agreement. So in other words, what I'm relying on is for that white person to be sufficiently advanced in their thinking and understanding of racial justice in order to give me the stamp of approval. And I've just used myself as a single example, but we can look across, as I've just referenced, every single sector of society, and that is the case. So whatever gets advanced, a white person generally has to give approval to it. We don't quite have in the UK a really advanced notion of philanthropy with black philanthropists pushing forward this agenda. We have seen some movement from likes of Stormzy and Lewis Hamilton. We are beginning to see some small moments of change. But I think there is an argument where we have to determine the rules of the game, if you will, to go back to my book, in terms of what we see as acceptable for racial justice. We can't necessarily just wait for white people to say, well, I like that particular project, so we'll give you funding for this. But I don't really like that one because that one makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. You, you know, that seems slightly perverse in the way that we're going about it. Yes, something you're right about, and I think this applies probably to this and other situations as well, is there can often be this idea that it's it's a pipeline problem. Oh my God, yes. In as much <laughs> that the reason white people occupy these positions of power is that fixing this problem is a, is a, a, a slow process and involves grassroots uh, introducing people into a pipeline which takes time and then there's some kind of problems within the pipeline. Talk, talk to me about what the flaws are in that way of thinking. As I said to you before we hit record, I'm really interested in patterns. Mm. Like, How is it we come to think in the way that we think? And are we missing things? Or are there patterns in the way that we think, in, in the language that we use, in the analysis that we use? And therefore, are we missing something? The way I try to paint this for readers is that imagine that the way that we think about racial justice is a painting. So you're in the Louvre or you're in the Tate Modern, wherever you like to go. And there's a huge painting And what I would say for white readers is that they're used to looking at that painting from a very particular position. So they see the way the light falls on it and they believe that that is reality. And what I'm inviting those white readers to do is to come over to stand somewhere else in the gallery, just stand back a little bit or stand a bit to the right. And you notice that actually the light now falls on that painting in a completely different way. You can see details that you couldn't see before. To come full circle to your question around the pipeline, I would say that there's a similar fixedness around how we view the problems around race. And so let me refer back, if I may, to the research I did on black female professors. And quite often when I say to say universities or to anybody else, what do you think is going on here? Why are there so few black female professors. So when I did my research a few years ago, there were just 30 black female professors from an overall pool of around 19,000. So there were very few. Now they're 40, 40 out of out of an overall pool of 22,000 professors. So I'm not good at maths, but the proportion hasn't changed. Exactly. Yeah. They haven't changed. But I think there's something else. So when, when you ask people, why do they think this is? They will say to you, well... 
It's a matter of pipeline. And what they mean by that is, well, they're not enough coming through, Nicola. It's like, okay, there aren't enough coming through. That's true. It is very true that actually when you look at the data around the number of, say, black postgraduates, it's quite small. So we're seeing a drop off from undergraduate to postgraduate and then those who want to go into academia. I agree with you. Okay. Are we missing something when we only think about that as the potential problem? That's my question. And so to refer back to my research, I carried out research with 20 of those 30 a few years ago. And they told me about their experiences in terms of becoming a professor and also once their professor. But I went back to that group about a year, 18 months later, not for research purposes per se, but just to update them about some things that I was up to. And it turned out that some had left higher education altogether. Some were also taking their employer to tribunal. And so pairing that with the actual evidence that I collated, It was really clear to me that the issue wasn't just one of pipeline, but the issue is one of retention. And the analogy that I sometimes use is one of a rusty bucket. So what institutions and anyone who purports to wanting to change this area, they say, we need to get more into the system. What we've got is our rusty bucket. Our rusty bucket represents higher education. Let's say it's got a handle. Let's be generous. It's got a handle on it, <laughs> but it's rusty. So you're pouring more in, but because it's rusty and it's got holes, they're leaving as well. There's attrition. Mm. So we're not holding on to them. So if we're going to think seriously about how we retain um, black female professors and what's going wrong, we have to look at both the pipeline and the culture retention. So in other words, we're looking at the culture in which those women are operating. Why are they leaving? Why are they not staying in the way that we'd want? I wonder what is going on when we're only looking at the problem through this really blinkered lens and then presenting these really blinkered solutions to it. We're still in the same place. Mm. We're still talking about that, the same issues. Mm. And I want to just come back and tie your previous question with this one, because I think they're really closely connected. Something is going wrong with those people who define themselves as well-meaning and committed to this area. And I would suggest there's a lack of humility about their expertise. So we have people who say, well, I'm really committed. I'm a leader or CEO or director, whatever it is. And I'm really committed to ensuring our black and minority ethnic employees, their experiences are improved. I'm like, okay, that's great. But you're not an expert in this. Mm. And it's a bit like me saying I'm a scientist because I might dye my hair at home. I'm not a scientist. (laughs) No more than that CEO is an expert in racial justice. Get an expert in. Be humble about what you don't know. (laughs) Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. 
So, so to bring it back to the storytelling, is the idea that the the storytelling of the experiences of racial injustice fosters a kind of empathy that then enables methods of structural change to be implemented and the right people to be listened to? Well, that feels quite ambitious through one book. I mean, if that happens, then great, give me the Nobel yeah, Peace Prize. But, but, you know, but speaking- what I want in the book to do, if it's not too immodest proposal, is to support a more mature conversation around race. Mm. Because I think the conversation around race as we sit here today has become really regressive and divisive. I can't understand how we live in a democracy that doesn't allow space for recognising some of the barriers that people who look like me experience. That Mm. seems really wrong and perverse. Empathy is important. Mm. Obviously, it's not everything. It's important because what, what the stories I hope offer is a more personal connection to the data. So I wanted to come away from the data for a minute pause the data, hold it there, Mm. be informed by it, but zoom in and say, this is actually what's going on in the real lives of people. They're saying, actually, I recognise this as a barrier. How can I work around this? What can I do? And so that's what I'm trying to convey through the stories. But I'm also, you'll notice some of the stories a little bit creative with their literary licence. And that's deliberate because sometimes the impact of racism is maddening. And sometimes it leaves you questioning your mind. Like, did that really happen? Was it me? Maybe it was me. Actually, I need to go and sense check that with someone else. Mm. So you're constantly making these calculations backwards and forward, backwards and forwards. And actually, no one wants to do that. That doesn't lead to a healthy existence in terms of one's mental health and well-being. It's exhausting. It's also it's absolutely a phenomenal exhausting. use of like, your reserves of energy, which you could be using for, for other stuff in your you life. You could be using it to succeed in the workplace. Yeah. You could be using it to relax on the beach. You could be using it for all manner of things. Mm. But the brutal reality is that this is part of our lives. And that's what I'm wanting to drive home through the book. I'm not wanting to wallow in the idea of black trauma. No. What I'm wanting to do is say, look, this is a reality. And if we're adults, we should recognise that reality and have a sensible conversation about it. And actually, and I do in the part of the book, parallel racism to abuse. And so we live in a society at the moment where there's sanctioned gaslighting towards those who say that they experience racism. And I think that's profoundly problematic for a country that declares itself a democracy. Can I ask you something? I'm asking this out of a, a genuine position of curiosity. A lot of the scenarios that the stories happen in are quite middle-class scenarios. Why, why did you make that choice? Because that's where the power sits. Yes, that's where the power sits. But they are quite middle-class scenarios. Um Although, as you can see, as the book moves on, the the stories get slightly deeper and darker. (laughs) But, you know, some of the chapters look at what happens in the workplace, also the interview process, so trying to secure a job. But there's also, there are interludes, so there's little moments, some of which have happened to me that I'm describing. But by and large, I agree with you, they could be described as quite middle class. But I think that speaks back to my interest in class. I'm really fascinated by the rules around class that we have as a society, 
which, like race, aren't necessarily named, but there are in terms of the way that one speaks, Mm. how one might carry oneself, hairstyle, where one shops. All of those things are infused with class. And we recognise that they're infused with class, even though they're not written down. So we could argue that there's a code that we subscribe to, that we've learned to subscribe to around class. And the same is true around race. And that's basically what I'm arguing. But part of the reason, yes, you're right, is that I look at the middle classes, but not explicitly, it's subtly informed because of the scenarios, because I really want to push back on this idea that somehow having reached particular um, levels in society in terms of status, so having these middle class achievements or having a middle class status offers automatic protection from racism because it doesn't. Mm. And again, as a society, because we don't have a sensible conversation about race, we easily fall into the trap of saying, let's improve social mobility, which is often slightly coded and shaped by class. Let's improve social mobility. And then all of one's problems fall away from one's shoulders. So that's one reason. But the other reason is for the point that I made earlier on, which is we've seen for decades, Jeff, decades, we have so many reports showing the underrepresentation of black people at senior levels across all sectors. But we still haven't found a way to properly identify both the problem and the solution, moreover. So we're stuck. And what in some ways I'm trying to do in the book is point to where we're stuck and show this is actually what's going on. We don't need another report. This is where we're stuck. And this is the bit that needs to be addressed. Another thing I wanted to ask you about is, I I think the book, I mean, firstly, I think anybody who picks it up will enjoy it. It's engagingly written and challenging. But I, I think it would be perhaps challenging in a way that people who consider themselves uh, quote-unquote allies might not expect it to be. There's one chapter where two of the characters are kind of making a an, an avoid list. Right, right. yes. And, yeah. and on that avoid list, people might recognise themselves. That's going to make some people uncomfortable. I think for the right reasons, though. But I'm in- interested to know about the, your, your choice in that. Why was that important to include? Well, because I think there's a laziness when it comes to understanding what being a white ally actually means. And the list that you're referring to, which, you know, whenever I read it out, people snigger and it's meant, it's but meant, it's funny. I mean, it's, it's funny. funny. Yeah. It's funny. But also I, I think, but you tell me slightly kind of like, oh God, am I on this list? A little yeah, bit yeah, uncomfortable. Yeah, but that's part of it's funny. <laughs> yeah. Right? So, so, you know, you, you read it and it says avoid white, senior white women, avoid women who are junior to you, avoid white people with pink hair, blue hair. Yeah. I mean, it goes on and on. <laughs> but, and it, it's supposed to push a little bit. But it's also reflecting the reality of the assessments that black people are making. We're making those assessments. It's just that white people don't really know about it. Or some of my colleagues might argue are not interested in knowing about it. I I think there's an issue in my view with white people who through their own determinations take up the label of being an ally. Who gave you the authority to take up that label? And how do you know that you really are? 
And do you know that you really are an ally based on your own judgment of your (laughs) behaviour? It just seems slightly perverse to me. So I do want white people to be provoked, gently provoked, but also think about their own practice. Are you really an ally? Who told you so? Where did you learn that? Was it your single best black friend who told you that you're an ally? Well, that might be true for them, but does that also hold true for other black people? You're not, you don't get given a single stamp of approval and then therefore no more work should be done. Being an ally takes work. It requires humility. It requires active listening. It also requires one to go away and keep reading, keep thinking and to be prepared to be challenged Mm. and to feel uncomfortable. Now, in my experience, what happens is if you challenge a white person on this subject who's not yet ready to be challenged, who is not very far along in their journey, they immediately get defensive, Mm. immediately. And so what I would invite those white colleagues to do, white friends, white counterparts to do, is actually feel really committed go and do the reading. If you're finding that you're defensive, ask yourself, why are you defensive? Maybe there's something you're missing and not understanding. So take it as a point of learning. Do a self-check. That defensiveness and denial, actually, there may be something else going on. And it's not just because Nicola likes talking about races, because I don't. I was asked recently, you know, this is quite a difficult subject area. Did you choose to do it? And actually, I didn't actively set out to specialise in racial justice. It's a difficult area. It's Mm. contentious. It's controversial. It's uncomfortable. And as a black woman, I'm not outside of the issues. My academic journey has many examples in it of some of the challenges that I refer to in the book. But what has disturbed me is the fact that we don't seem to be making progress in the way that people like me would determine to be progress. Mm, so interesting, isn't it? Because I think there'd just be this assumption of progress to people, which is, again, one of those disconnects. I yeah. feel that the last couple of years, the things that people feel have been implemented uh, in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement and the murder of George Floyd, people would have an assumption of things that are just getting better and it's really interesting to hear about the the disconnect between actually what's happening according to data to empirical evidence and uh, how much people are patting themselves on the back and there's so much patting on the back and i just there's a bit in the book and you know it, it makes some serious points but again i think in a way is quite funny where you write about the reaction in the wake of a fictionalised version of a high-profile racist event and the kind of mad scramble for performative action and to fix the problem without any real analysis of what the problem is or what the correct solutions are. Yeah, exactly. And and, and so in, in that chapter, I'm, I'm thinking most explicitly about George Floyd's murder, the African-American George Floyd. But we also have other moments of history, most notably in this country, obviously Stephen Lawrence, who was murdered in 1993. But what I'm inviting the reader to do is to zoom out and look at this. What is going on? Is this leading to meaningful change? What is meaningful change? And so... What I'm doing at that moment, and I was really interested and struck by 
what happened in the aftermath of George Floyd and deeply shook by it, actually, insofar as there was this kind of groundswell of activity where all these books by black authors, whether or not they were about race, and I don't think that was intentional, were suddenly being swept off shelves and, you know, <laughs> across the country. And I just found that baffling. Mm. I found it absolutely baffling because I just thought, but where were you yesterday? Where were you when there were people marching on Downing Street? Where were you when debates were being had in boardrooms? Where were you when we were arguing these same points in newspaper articles, in academic articles? Where were you? Why are you only listening now? And I forced myself to ask that question. Why are you listening? What is going on? Why is this moment um, attracting such attention? And the conclusions made me really uncomfortable, but this is what I, I mulled over to myself, was George Floyd was murdered when we were in a global pandemic. So in many ways, we were forced to pay attention. We were in our homes. In many ways, we were primed. We were primed because we were, many of us, in a state of kind of emotional discomfort and vulnerability because we didn't know what was happening with the pandemic. But we also have, if you will, a warm-up act in the Amy Cooper affair that happened in Central Park. So are we actually saying, this is my provocation, are we actually saying that in order to draw the attentions of white people to the horrors of racism, that we have to have those similar conditions in place? Really? I mean, that that, Mm -hmm. as a provocation is absolutely horrifying. Yeah, yeah. But but well, well, let me just jump back, if I may, Jeff, for a minute, because it connects really closely to this idea of what our markers of success are. So people will often, both um, in, in formal spaces, but also informally, will say to me, but Nicola, it's not as bad as it was in the 60s. You know, people using the N-word and there were skinheads and this and that, and they're now more professors. You know, as if I should rejoice that I'm not being called the N-word walking mm-hmm. down the street. Should I be rejoicing? Is that where my happiness lies? And actually, my my benchmarks for success are more those that look forward. So I would like to think that it's possible for me to live in a world, for someone who looks like me to live in a world where I'm less likely to die in childbirth, where if I have a black boy, they're not more likely to be excluded from school, where I don't have to worry about them when they're walking down the street in terms of their interactions with the police, where if they go on to university, they might have entered university with higher level of grades than their white counterparts, but they leave with a lower degree outcome. I don't want to worry about those things. I don't want to worry about the fact that six months post-graduation, they're least likely to be in employment. So until we live in a society where we can say, actually, we've made discernible change on those issues, I can't yet say that we've reached a place of success. How do you stay optimistic then? Well, I, I was in Parliament on, on, on Monday. I was in an all-party parliamentary group talking about the English literature curriculum. 
And I made a point around hope because everyone there was, well, most people, not everyone was, was slightly younger than me. Um, and so I felt like this really miserable older person, <laughs> which is probably true. <laughs> I'm getting older and miserable. But I think we have to ask ourselves questions about what hope and what optimism mean, because I think sometimes they can be used as a placating device. So I will have hope and optimism when the nature of the narrative, the debate around this subject changes, because what I think is necessary as a first point of call is an improvement in our conversation and our understanding around this. That's absolutely essential. And in part, it's not the only way in, but in part, I would like to see those people who are in leadership positions Politically, yes, of course, but also in terms of organisations and in schools, take more ownership of the subject area. So I think we can be optimistic if we're seeing change in the way that we want, but the change has to be against meaningful objectives in the way that I've just set out. We can't have the benchmark being those low standards of comparison and then patting ourselves on the back saying, well, it's not as bad as it was 10 years ago. <laughs> Briefly wanted to touch on education. You were, Was it a Channel 4 programme you are on? Yes, the school ago. that tried to end racism. Yeah, and school years education isn't really something that you go into in depth in the book. But what did you learn on that project? Oh, gosh, you know, that was such a, an amazing project to be involved in. One of the key things that I was left with was the fact that these children, particularly the black and Asian children, that racism is a reality in their lives already. And, you know, the, the, the program received all manner of positive reviews and awards. It won a BAFTA. The tiny bit of criticism that it did receive were from adults saying that we are somehow besmirching these innocent children by bringing this dirty subject of racism to their feet. And I think, God, that's so naive. We live in a society that is racist. And so we are doing children, those children, all children, a disservice by not having conversations with them. And so what struck me by that group at that school at Glenthorne was really how brave and bold they were, how mature they were in their thinking, because they were able to articulate white and black and Asian alike. So they were, actually, this is a bit uncomfortable you know, and actually, this is what I experienced when I went to the shop or when I walked down the road or when I'm in the football match. I hear these names. So I think I was really, in terms of what I took away from it, was the tenacity and the sharpness of those young children that we worked with. They were amazing. They're absolutely amazing and quite humbling. And in a way, I have to say, I would love to see adults have the same maturity in terms of their conversations around race. Thanks so much for taking the time. As, as I said before, the book is tremendous and I really recommend it to people. What's next for you, Nicola? Probably a holiday, actually, if I'm really honest. I want to be served cocktails and do nothing somewhere in the sun. But um, no, seriously, well, that is serious, if I'm really <laughs> honest. I, don't, I want to just see how the book goes, I think, in the first instance. I've got some things that I'm quietly plotting in my head, which I won't divulge yet. The book is The Racial Code, Tales of Resistance and Survival. Nicola Rollock, thank you so much. Thanks so much. 
Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Our thanks to Nicola. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer, supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our idents and our artwork was designed by Henry Cole. I've been Jeff Lloyd, and these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. Thank you.